welcome to another Dishcast. This week, uh, I invited David Wallace Wells on, who is, in my humble opinion, the best writer on COVID and an eye-opening writer about climate change, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, which I cannot recommend more, even though it will scare the shit out of you, as it did me. Um, and people try to throw everything at him for this argument that he's made. And, and you know, a few points here and there, but basically, uh, in my view, it's sort of held up and it was a ballsy essay to write and a ballsy book to write. And I'm thrilled to have David on. He's an old colleague from New York Magazine um, and also helped me actually write a, an essay about plagues and many other things. He's an absolutely splendid fellow. I want to start, David. Uh, welcome, with a story this morning which struck me as the perfect David Wallace Wells story, which is this. Uh, Dateline Melbourne, Australia, just days after residents of Perth, Australia's fourth largest city, were ordered to stay in because of the coronavirus. Some were forced to flee their homes on Tuesday as a ferocious wildfire bore down on the city's outskirts. I don't mean to laugh, but it's, it's, there they are. They're locked down to avoid this particular virus. God, I shouldn't be laughing, but it is just, it's almost, it's, it's comic at this point how brutal this can be. Um, uh, so that's where we are, isn't it, David? Tell me, first of all, how optimistic you are about this pandemic at this point. We're now, over a year in, basically, uh, for the U.S. anyway, um, in terms of our being thoroughly aware of it going on, are we at a worse place than you expected a year ago or better or roughly where you expected? At the moment, I'm revising my expectations uh, in a more pessimistic direction. But even f where I was a few weeks ago, um, you know, I wouldn't have been happy a year ago if we were, you know, if someone, had, you had pulled me aside last January and said, um, we're still going to be losing a few thousand Americans a day. Um, there are going to be hundreds of thousands of, of new cases every week. Um, and we're going to be facing, we're going to have vaccines, that's miraculous, but we're going to be facing um, really significant skepticism in the population of those vaccines. Um, that is going to really, if not um, prevent, then complicate our efforts to get to herd immunity protection um, through a combination of natural immunity and uh, vaccine immunity. You know, depending on exactly how we think, how infectious we think this disease is, experts now think that, you know, we'll need to, vac we'll need to have protection, immune protection in at least 70% of the public and maybe as much as 90% of the public um, before the disease can really die out. And if we have, you know, 37% of nursing home workers who've been offered the vaccine have taken it, which means that 63% of those who've been offered the vaccine working in nursing homes, seeing the, like the ugly face of the disease um, firsthand have refused it. Um, I think we're, we have a real problem on our hands. I think um, I've been looking forward to the rollout of the vaccines for a while, thinking that, you know, it may take a while. It was going to be slower than we had hoped, but the development was so rapid and it really would play the role of miraculous deus ex machina here. And I'm worrying for a number of reasons um, that that timeline is going to be much longer than I thought it would be just a few weeks ago. So one reason for that is, you know, skepticism about the vaccines, which is much larger than I would have thought um, 
a few months ago when there were stories published about vaccine skepticism. I thought when push comes to shove and those drugs are out and available, then people will take them. We've lived through this brutally horrific year. How could you not take them? Um, but the other thing that worries me is these new um, variants. Um, you know, we don't exactly know the nature of each of them. We haven't um, sequenced the, the, you know, the genetics of them all that successfully. We haven't watched them in the wild all that well. Um, we know a little bit more about the British one than the South African one, and a little bit more about the South African one than the Brazilian one, and a little bit more about the Brazilian one than um, the Californian one. Um, but all of them seem to be challenging some of the basic assumptions we had about um, the nature of the disease in the near future of the pandemic. Um, and the one that scares me the most is the is the Brazilian one. And that's because um, it's a rose in Manaus, which is a city in the Amazon. Um, incidentally, it's a place I've been. I've also been to Wuhan. I've also been to Lombardy. I feel like I'm like patient zero in this um, whole pandemic. But um, can I stop you yeah. right there for a second and, yeah. and just let's 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 start with that first point you made, which is yeah, uh, which is these. Are, I mean, when I think about vaccine skepticism, I, I I have a real hard time wrapping my mind around it. I think partly because I've always had basic confidence in the medical and scientific establishment. And I, and I, you know, and I also learned during the AIDS epidemic who to trust, how to read studies, how to think seriously about this. But this particular question, why would people not, after a year of lockdown, loss of income, stress, uh, fatigue, terror, death, would they still say, I'd rather not? And, the, and as you said, this is from healthcare workers who are the most upfront exposed to the people dying of this. So if that doesn't scare people, what is it, David? What, what is it in the, in the human mind that is resisting this? I think we're really scared of novelty. I think in general, I mean, I think you could look at the, the pandemic that way, too. There's a way in which, you know, looking back, we may have overreacted in the spring um, because we were so scared of a new disease. Um, I think at the moment, we're now taking the opposite approach and underreacting. But um, I think that in general, we're really, really scared of new stuff and really comfortable with old stuff, even if the old stuff is really brutal and ineffective and, you know, problematic. Um in France, it's like in France in particular, it's through the roof, right? I mean, it's like half the country won't take the vaccine, which is surely at some point governments are going to have to say, "Look, we can't begin our economies, we can't get anywhere if we don't get more people vaccinated." Now, that's going to be a very tough decision, presumably. Yeah, and and um, you know, there there probably will be employers that require it of their employees um, even earlier than that, and then I'll get into a lot of. Um, you know, uh, health privacy laws um, that we haven't really, like, we haven't sorted through here either. I think it's going to be pretty thorny. And the easiest solution is um, that the public takes up the vaccine um, very casually and comfortably and without opposition, but that doesn't seem to be where we are. And when you look back to, you know, there are all of these stories about mid-century vaccination programs in the West that are incredibly inspiring. In New York City, in a period of two or three weeks, um, in, uh, I think, 1947, we we vaccinated 6 million people against smallpox in response to a smallpox outbreak, 6 million people in just a few weeks. Um, and, you know, the, the polio vaccine was sort of celebrated all around the country. People were out in the street waiting for their vaccines, lining up around the block, no resistance, no skepticism at all. And that's kind of incredible considering that vaccine technology was 
pretty new at that point. Um, we're now, theoretically, we're benefiting from, you know, three quarters of a century of um, familiarization, uh, normalization, routinization of vaccines. Everybody gets them, almost everybody gets them um, in early childhood and gives them to their kids when their kids are that age. You'd think that we would have grown much more comfortable, but it seems at least in, in the face of a novel disease with a novel vaccine um, response, the opposite has happened. And you know, ultimately, I, I don't wanna offer any strong hypotheses about why it's happening. I honestly don't entirely understand it either. You know, that people, people say, well, there is this, um, especially among um, black and Latin communities, there's a sort of skepticism of the medical establishment going back to um, you know, the, Tus the Tuskegee experiment, which is, you know, uh, totally legitimate as a as a sort of historical, you know, that happened, that's scary. But um, this is not a vaccine that is being rolled out in an ethnically targeted way. It's being rolled out, um, you know, for the most part to the population as a, as a whole. You'd think that those hangups would would disappear. You'd think especially in among medical workers and health professionals who had seen the face of the pandemic up close that they'd be especially eager to turn the page on that. Um, or those communities yet, that are disproportionately likely to have to work um, around other people who have to take public transportation, uh, who are poor, who are having to be out there, don't, can't afford to stay inside and be more protected. They paradoxically seem to be among the most resistant to taking well, the you vaccine. Know, you, could, you can understand that to a certain degree because these are people who've figured out how to live under these conditions over the last year relatively well. Whereas people like you and me, who've been mostly living in our little bunkers, are probably eager to get out and live, live a little more freely. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a kind of a social um, and psychological training that's gone on where people who are on the front lines have probably started to understand the disease as a manageable threat as opposed to a kind of an existential threat. Whereas those of us who have been uh, more protected all throughout are mm -hmm. um, a little more desperate for relief because we've been we've been taking such extreme precautions. Um, but it, you know, big picture, I think it really is quite problematic. I mean, uh, you know, if if we, it's easy to imagine now in countries like the U.S. and the U.K. and really all throughout um, the first world, enough people having um, vaccination protection that they can navigate their worlds, go out, work in the way that they used to, socialize largely in the way that they used to, and feel as though the pandemic is over, while all around them, there are other communities that are much less well vaccinated, um, that are still suffering from the disease, still dying. Um, and I think that's, that's a, a quite ugly outcome that we're nevertheless relatively likely to hit over the next six months or a year. Now, maybe if we fast forward two or three years, um, that skepticism will die down and the vaccination, you know, we'll be able to vaccinate the population more thoroughly. But the longer that we go without achieving this herd immunity threshold, the more time we give the disease itself to mutate and indeed to mutate in ways that um, will evade protection of either natural immunity or um, vaccines. And, you know, the people who are designing these drugs say we can retool these diseases, these vaccines relatively quickly to respond to new variants. And that's true. But if you take the timeline of, of vaccine rollout here in the U.S., we're talking about basically a nine month, nine month to a year rollout to get everything out to all the people in the country who, who would want it. And that means that um, we'll have to go through some version of that deployment timeline 
every time we need to deploy a slightly modified vaccine to respond to a, a new mutation or variant. And that means in each of those windows, in each of those nine month to a year windows, there could be considerably, you know, considerably more dying and suffering. And that goes even more for the parts of the developing world that aren't even likely to see any of these vaccines for the next couple of years, which means that they could be seeing um, variants and mutations that allow for reinfection that are more transmissible or more deadly or both um, in cycles going forward every six or nine months or maybe even faster for a period of a few years. So a country, you know, some country in, in um, Latin America or sub-Saharan Africa um, that's really waiting on, on vaccines until 2023 or 2024 may effectively go through five or six or even eight or 10 full pandemic cycles um, before we actually close the door on this. Now, um, I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to happen, but it, the longer that we, the, the more slowly we roll out the vaccines, the more we allow the vaccine to sort of percolate in, um, in the population all around the world, the greater the likelihood of, um, variants. of variations and mutations accelerating that, that, um, that do create that dynamic, which is just a, a horrific picture. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, because if you, if you can't get it done quickly, you are creating circumstances with people partly part of the population immunized that's going to force the virus to adapt in ways that will make it, well, we don't know. Sometimes they become more virulent. Sometimes they become less virulent because the goal, of course, for viruses is to replicate. But to be slightly less virulent but more contagious or more infectious is, is obviously something that might well happen. Is it likely that we might get both more transmissible, which we've absolutely seen. And there were some studies in Britain, I think, that suggested the, the B117 thing uh, was actually uh, slightly more dangerous. It, the, the impact of it was actually worse than the previous one, although they don't seem to have solid numbers. They have solid numbers on the infectious or transmissibility or whatever you want to call it, but not on the seriousness of the disease. But you're right. We have this moving target. It's not like it changes too. It moves as we pursue it and it, it evolves. It has a, you know, it's obviously doesn't have a mind of its own, but it has an evolutionary strategy. Um, what if it's well, just to, go, just to yeah. talk for a minute about the experience in Manaus, which I think is yeah, really illustrative. Do. This is a city where, according to the seroprevalence, the, the sort of blood data that was um, taken and then modeled in the fall, you know, there's really good research saying that 75 or 76, actually is the number they found, 76% of the city had been exposed to the sort of classic coronavirus strain by October and had attained um, some amount of immune protection, 76% of, of the city, which is a really high number. Mm -hmm. And even if that's below the, you know, the technical threshold of herd immunity, you would expect yeah. that it was so, so many people had protection that the disease would have a really hard time moving around, even if it, yeah. even if it was able to move around a little bit, it, it would have a really hard time moving around. It would move really slowly. And they've had this completely horrific um, second wave just through December which also, by the way, is in the Brazilian summer when you'd expect transmission to be suppressed, um, that has been actually worse, more, uh, more cases and more deaths than the initial wave in the spring. Quite now, considerably, right? I think there was like 400 a month in the spring and there's like something like four, 1,400 a month in the last three weeks or so in Manaus, uh, as, I, as I understood the story. Yeah, we don't we don't really know what's going on there. The, the medical surveillance isn't close enough for us to know whether these cases are all reinfections, i.e., people who 
we thought would have been immune but are not immune to the new strain, or whether it's just spreading really, really rapidly through that last quarter of the population, or if the estimate of 76 was too high. But even so, we're, we're looking at, you know, a an experience there, um, this new strain that sort of explodes all of our mental models um, that we might have taken some comfort from just a month or two ago, thinking that, okay, if things get really bad and things spread out of control, that's a worst case scenario. We're going to see a lot of people get sick and a lot of people die, but at least it'll bring us to the other side of this pandemic and be able to live with some community protection. We would have pointed at Manaus and a few other cities in the world as having had that experience already and say, okay, that's our worst case scenario. But now it looks like a worst case scenario is going through that, having all of that death and suffering, and then having to face it all over again, just six months later. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, like, it's hard to know exactly what the rhythm of mutation will be. As you said, some mutations are going to take us probably in a, in a, you know, a less lethal direction. Um, but the more time that we give the virus to evolve, the more um, really harrowing experiences we're going to see all around the world, like we're seeing now in Manaus. And, and I think, you know, I don't know about you, I've spent mo much of the last year conceptualizing this as a plague year, which is to say a singular plague year for a number of reasons. I thought basically by the spring of 2021, we'd be on the other side of it. And, you know, I know a lot of people who've been vaccinated. I think New York City is like moving, you know, by global standards relatively quickly, even if it's much slower than we might hope. On the other, and so my immediate experience may well change a few months from now. But thinking globally, um, I think we're we're much farther from the end of the pandemic than um, at least I really expected just a few months ago. Now, why is that exactly? <clears throat> I mean, I read these complicated stories about the production of vaccines, but it remains the case that we actually did have a vaccine as early as last spring, right? We'd actually, they did actually figure it out in the lab how to, uh, how to stymie this thing. Um, the, the Moderna vaccine was designed in two days. It was designed in mid-January over a weekend. Um, and it actually was fully designed before China had even acknowledged that the disease tr was transmitted from human to human. That's, that's how quickly that's it was incredible. designed. Now, so we had the solution, as it were, uh, a year ago. And yet even yeah. now, the vast majority of people, even in the developed West, are, uh, uh, don't have access to that vaccine. Now, that's <clears throat> presumably a function of all the testing that has to go on, uh, the, the trials that have to continue to make sure there isn't any... Uh, but it seems to me also that if there were ever a case to say, fuck these regulations, we're in a crisis here. We're in if people want to take that risk and take a vaccine early, they should be allowed to. Well, there are sort of two things going on. One is the sort of regulatory state that you're describing. Mm -hmm. And then one is the sort of just the difficulty of producing vaccines at the scale that we are hoping to with the quality control that we we need for them to have. So to talk about the regulatory state for a second, um, you know, I didn't I, I did a piece about um, how long it took for the, the vaccine to be um, rolled out to the public. And it's important to keep in mind, this is much faster than any vaccine has ever been produced um, in the history of vaccines. So on some level, it's an incredibly fast rollout. Well, two days. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but even building in the whole year of testing that we did, one right. year from design to yeah. rollout is like people thought 10 years ago would have laughed at you if you proposed that that was possible. And it's a sign of how fast, especially our, um, our but, genetic but, but research. Let's, let's go back to that polio vaccine. How yeah. are they able to do that so much more effectively and swiftly 
than we have today. Is it because it was a simpler vaccine? Is it is the is this mRNA uh, uh, route much more complicated or or problematic? I mean, I, I think a lot of people have in their head like we used to be able to do this kind of thing and now we can't. At the same time, we heard we're told this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened, never happened before. And I like we seem to be in this weird thing. Of, of of really ahead of the past and yet somehow not as capable as the past. Am I, what am I getting wrong there? I think that, no, you got it exactly right. <laughs> um, but I think, that, so there are these two big issues. There's the regulatory oversight and then there's the, the production and rollout. Right. And on the regulatory side, no scientist who I talked to who was working on um, vaccine research expected that these vaccines would be ineffective or unsafe. They all knew in January or February, you know, depending on which, which one you're talking about, they all knew as soon as the design was developed that it was going to be safe and effective. Um, that means that we basically went through a year of, um, you know, sort of clinical trial theater in which we were just demonstrating to the public what scientists knew beforehand. Now, there is probably a case that you'd want to do some safety testing at the very least, even in the midst of a, of a pandemic to make sure that you weren't giving something to the public that was gonna be really damaging to them. But since most um, adverse effects of vaccines arrive, sometimes in just the first 15 minutes, but really over the first few days, you can do a kind of large scale safety test um, in relatively short order. Most scientists say you could do it very thoroughly in a month or six weeks. So why and didn't we there, do that? Why did we not do that? Well, uh, we have a real aversion to, um, you know, we, we're we're really scared of um, of like of lawsuits, uh, to put it bluntly. But we have a sort of a culture that's really um, wants to make absolutely sure that every T is crossed and every I is dotted before we start to roll things out to the public. And that is um, a, a result of an overgrown regulatory bureaucracy um, in the U.S., but also in the U.K. and especially in the EU, where there's still um, sort of looking at a lot of these vaccines and many of them haven't yet been approved. Um, they and, just approved, didn't they just approve AstraZeneca? I mean, maybe on Friday or... Uh, I, I don't think they've approved it in the US still. Oh, and, and, but in um, the EU. Um, in the EU, yeah. And in the, this is, an you know, it's a, it's a AstraZeneca um, like sort of bungled an early stage of their trial where they, they gave half doses to, um, to people rather than full doses. And yet showed, even with those half doses, that the, the, the vaccine was effective. But because they had sort of mismanaged the trial, um, the FDA is um, holding hostage their, uh, their vaccines. And for them to complete a whole additional trial um, from start to finish, um, you know, done successfully. Um, I think it's a really complicated question. Most of the vaccine scientists who I spoke to in working on that piece about how we rolled out this vaccine said that going forward, we should be able to build all of these, all of this clinical trial work into the before time so that um, we know that these vaccine platforms are safe. We have a pretty good idea of whether they're effective. We can do a sort of a rush job um, uh, efficacy trial and get them out in the space of a couple of months from the arrival of a, of a new disease. And that is, you know, kind of unbelievably fast. If we had done it this time, we could have actually rolled them out before like the U.S. death toll um, crossed into the tens of thousands. Um, why we didn't is, you know, we have a really slow moving regulatory state. Um, we had a really incompetent and in sort of, you know, 
sociopathically indifferent um, president <laughs> who wasn't all that interested in. Um, but we also had incompetence of the CDC. For example, they fucked up their first test, right? Um, yeah, it was actually the FDA. Oh, but, yeah, but the also FDA the CDC, the CDC, right? Yeah, the combination of the two was yeah. was fatal. This when I look at a when I look at a country that's had some success, at least you know, it, not success in restraining the epidemic, but some better uh, progress on vaccinations. It seems that they also they they decided quite early that they were going to order these vaccines from AstraZeneca in large numbers. I think last June in Britain, I'm talking about, uh, confident that they it would work. In other words, they kind of risked getting a bunch of vaccines that might not work and spending a huge amount of money. Um, and therefore, they got it three months earlier than, than the Europeans, than the EU actually got it. And that accounts, apparently, I mean, I'm just reading what I read, for the, the advantage the Brits currently got on the Europeans in terms of getting more needles in, in arms. And also, they, they've decided... And it's interesting how this this decision matrix happens. They've decided that with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which which is two shots, that they would get as many people with one shot as possible before delivering necessarily the second shot, which is another risk to take. You could conceivably uh, leave people not vaccinated enough, although the data suggests that it's a risk that's worth taking. But you're getting more people, just more regular people less able to transmit the virus or much less able to run it earlier. So you take risks with the general population in order to get an edge on this. What I don't understand is, is why that kind of aggression is not, I mean, why, for example, now in America, people who are vulnerable to COVID-19 can't demand the FDA fucking allow them to take the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. I mean, there's, a, there's I, I, you know, my background is, uh, in terms of life history, was remembering the struggle with treatments for HIV and AIDS in the 80s and 90s, where, where again, this regulatory machine operated in a way that was kind of glacial. And we haven't had a kind of act up for COVID saying, for fuck's sake, people are dying. Uh, let's scrap some of these regulations. Let's allow people who might otherwise be prevented from getting some of these early vaccines um, to try it out if they want to and just sign, you know, sign your rights away, uh, but get access to it. People that did that in the AIDS era and the HIV era are alive today. People who didn't are dead. And, and I, I don't know why we can't have that kind of aggression and emergency here. Well, you know, I, I'm with you and I would like to see the whole system working in that way for sure. On the other hand, it brings us back to where we started, which is to say there isn't a distressingly high number of people in the US, in the UK, in Europe, who are not willing to take these vaccines, even given the relatively slow rollout that we've seen. And so if we accelerate, accelerated that even faster, uh, presumably that willingness would, would shrink. Um, I don't know the solution mm. to this problem, but I do, you know, I do wonder and worry that if we had, you know, rolled out the Moderna vaccine in March, when we first shipped it to um, shipped it to the FDA for its clinical trials, whether we made it simultaneously available to the public, just how many people would have been willing to take it? You know, I, I probably would have, my wife probably would have, maybe you would have, but like, you know, are, can you really have a, a hope of getting to 60 or 80 or 90% of the population? I think that's, um, you know, 
the the experience of the present where there's so much resistance to the vaccines, I think suggests otherwise, suggests that it might've been counterproductive. But when we talk about this comparative experience with the disease generally, what interests me more um, than the vaccine rollout is the management of the pandemic itself. And in the US, we have this incredibly Trump-centered view of what happened and what went wrong. We think we had completely incompetent or indifferent leadership. And if we just had someone who believed in the science and put effective bureaucrats in control, we would be doing much, much better. But when I look around the whole West, I see no other country that succeeded at all by global standards in controlling this disease. So I'm just looking at the, you know, our world and data stats right now, deaths per million, the US is at about 1300, um, the UK is at 1500, Belgium's at 1800, Czech Republic's at 1500, Italy's at 1400. So all those countries are, were, you know, had higher death tolls than the US. Spain and France are also above a thousand. So right in our neck of the woods. Germany, which has been celebrated as this sort of like um, paragon of scientific leadership, is at 682. So this is like basically the best that the West could do. 682 deaths per million. Taiwan. This is, is per, at, this is per day or per, per, per day? For the whole pandemic. Oh, okay. 600, oh, per, it's 682 Sorry, yeah. deaths per million. Germany, 682 per million. Taiwan, 0.34. So the absolute best experience that we've had from an advanced wealthy country in the West, Germany, 700, roughly 700 deaths per million is about 1 2100th as effective as the experience in Taiwan. Now, Taiwan has its own benefits. It's an, it's a, it's an island. It's basically a city state. Um, you know, it's a, a very, um, there's a huge amount of social trust. Um, but all across Asia, you look at the death rates and they are just like totally trivial compared to what happened in the West. Compared Japan, Japan and Britain, I mean, because they're two islands. <laughs> they, they, yeah. they have that advantage to some extent. They're very crowded. They're very busy, uh, very compact. Uh, what do we learn from that comparison between Jan Japan and the UK? Where well, is Japan on this thing? Because you said the UK was like 1,300? 1,500. 1,500. Uh, Japan, Japan is at 45. Um, it's, it's, what? Okay, no. And you know, the, Japan, Japan is also un, of the East Asian countries. Japan is the oldest. It's the wealthiest. It is, in a lot of ways, the most Western. And South Korea is, a, you know, a little bit um, of an, would also be a kind of Western culturally. But in a lot of ways, yeah, Japan is a sort of our, our best contrast over there. I think there, are, there, are, you know, I think there are a lot of um, big questions that remain unanswered. That has got to about, have something about genetics. That has it. it, it Surely there is something going on there. I mean, I think that whatever the answer, I'm sure the answer is multifactorial. And but I think almost all of those answers are ones that technocratic liberals are really resistant to. I think that we have a tendency in a place like the U.S. or the U.K. or even Germany to think that any problem can be solved by good management. And I think that this tells us the really divergent experiences of the West and East Asia, and you know. We could talk about the global south also, but they have a sort of a different experience too. Suggests that culture is really important. Suggests that possibly genetics and biology is really important. Suggests that luck 
is really important and bad luck can play a really determinative role. Um, and then there are a lot of more particular lessons like, yeah, being an island is helpful, which means that closing our borders turned out to have been really helpful um, if you did that effectively. I think also one really driving determinant um, of all of these outcomes was the way that we responded to the initial news. When people in Western Europe and the US saw China locking down a city of 10 or 11 million people, we thought those crazy Chinese with their backwards, their backwards diseases from all their bat eating, we didn't think, wow, this is a global power suspending the life of 10 or 12 million citizens to protect the rest of the country in a last ditch effort. But all the countries of East Asia looked at what was happening in Wuhan and they thought, holy shit, <laughs> we have to get our shit together because this disease is paralyzing the most powerful country in our region. We can't just assume that our wealth and our, you know, you know, our, our great hospitals are going to save us. We need to prepare preemptively. We need to start doing large scale surveillance testing. We need to be insisting on mask wearing. Um, all of these measures that were really slow to come in the West, and even when they did come, were not taken up by the by the full um, full population. Everywhere in Asia were undertaken immediately, and as a result, um, you know the the disease was in almost all of these countries effectively defeated. They're not living with the pandemic in South Korea. They had New Year's party, maskless indoors New Year's parties in South Korea. They had baseball games where people are at the stadium. In Australia, they had people at the Australian So Open. what were the key measures that South Korea or Japan took? Now, you, you emphasize the very beginning because obviously that turns out to be the most crucial period, the, the period when you have detected a virus but do not know how far it's gone uh, or anything. They responded very quickly with what? I mean, what did South Korea do right well, different different countries actually did took different measures, and one of the reasons that Japan is so interesting is that they never went into lockdown, um, right. unlike unlike many of these other East Asian countries, and indeed a lot of countries in Western Europe, they never went into lockdown. They pretty quickly though said, "Don't get, don't don't gather in big groups." In the U.S., we had city by city measures. In Europe, we had city by city measures that sometimes started at like, "Okay, no groups of more than a thousand, no groups of more than five hundred." And then we gradually lowered the um, lowered the thresholds until it was basically, you know, don't see anyone outside your immediate family. In Japan, pretty quickly, they said, OK, we're not going to do shelter in place, but like we're not going to have social events um, that are bigger than 25 or 50. Um, they also very quickly were, were very quick to ad adapt um, universal mask wearing in part because. Um, you know, culturally, because of the exposure to SARS and MERS over the last couple of decades, they were sort of used to that. Um, but they didn't actually take many of the sort of dramatic intrusive measures that other countries throughout East Asia and the rest of the world took. And they were able to survive it actually quite comfortably, even so. They also took a very innovative approach to contact tracing, which in the West, we've been mostly unable to stand up at any scale that's all that useful. But where we're still, even when it is working, we're still focused on, focused on what's called forward tracing. So you get a positive case. And then you try to find all of the people that that person recently encountered to see who they might have transmitted the disease to. Japan took a backward facing approach, 
which was built on the understanding that this disease was spread in um, a really uh, erratic way, such that 90% of the cases come from 10% of the cases, and most people don't infect anyone else. And that meant if you find someone who's infected, rather than trying to contact all of their contacts, because the chances are they wouldn't have infected anybody, the median person doesn't infect anybody, you go backwards and say, where did this person likely get it from? Because the person they likely got it from was somebody who was spreading the disease to a lot of people at once. That's the power law dynamic of the, of the, of the disease spread. And so that meant that their contact tracing program was much, much more effective than anything that we've managed or mo- hmm. any, anything that, any, that's been managed in the because West. Because they understood we, that the actual transmission of this was from a small minority of people who had been infected. Now, what, kind, what minority is that? Because understanding that is sort of essential, right? It means that we shouldn't be terrified of everybody, that it, it's a small minority that actually spread this as opposed to just have it, right? What, what's yes. the percentage there? How, how big a minority is that? Different, different studies come up with different numbers, but the, I, I think it's about 10% of cases mm. produce 90% of new cases. That's fascinating. Um, and really, like the average, the median person does not infect a single other person, which means oftentimes it is the case that even within a couple, even within a household, yeah. Um, someone who gets the virus won't transmit it to their mm. spouse or to their children or, you know, child to their parent, um, which, you know, we have this sort of like uniform universal model where we have to be vigilant all the time. And that makes a certain amount of sense because knowing who is going to be um, promiscuously transmissive and who's going to be not transmissive at all is really hard to know ahead of time. But looking at it from a, from a structural point of view, as the Japanese did, and said, that, okay, if this is the, the case, then we can't, you know, we're not, we're going to be much less effective trying to trace forward rather than tracing backward. Right. And so, um, you know, so there, if they found several people future, that had the same, for example, they had five people they found that had the se- that had in their past a common person, that would be a very good person to do the contact trace for. Let's say you got, you got COVID. Yeah. And, um, the chances that you infected anyone else are less than 50. But the chances that whoever infected you infected other people are really high because right. that's the way that the dynamic yeah. works. If you got infected from someone, the person who infected you was likely to infect other mm. people. And yet you are unlikely yourself to infect other people. So there's just much more bang for the buck in investing in that backwards looking um, modeling. And because the modeling is more effective, then you learn more quickly what kinds of environments are going to be transmitting. Um, and that means that they were also very quick on, on dealing with um, ventilation issues and making sure that there was fresh air everywhere, which is something that really throughout the West, we were very slow on and meant that all through the spring and even into the summer, um, we were subjecting, you know, needlessly um, subjecting people to all of this hygiene theater and then not actually doing anything about the airflow, which is a much more powerful um, determinant. Now, going forward, it may be the case, there have been some studies showing there is a real differential in like how prolific a spreader of mucus or saliva you are. And there may be, you know, a lot of people in the West are quite concerned about investigating this further because they think that it'll lead to a kind of a a scarlet letter situation. But it may be for the next pandemic um, that we come to that pandemic armed with the knowledge that say, I am a super spreader. And when I get sick, I'm likely to infect many more people. 
and you, Andrew, are not a super spreader. And that means that you are much less likely to infect someone if you're sick. And we may have different targeted policies um, based on that information. But how would it's you not, tell that? Would you tell that from the kind of COVID they have, from the variant they have, or from from the fact that they cough everywhere all the time, or, or that they're well? It's you know, it's a multi it's a multifactorial thing, and right. the science is sort of unsettled. I don't I don't mean to be um, mm -hmm. getting ahead of the science, but there is a baseline um, understanding that certain people, when they sneeze, when they cough, just produce more aerosol droplets. Mm. Um, they are more prolific producers of this, mm. um, you know, of droplets, and other mm. people are less prolific. It is also the case that if you have more viral load in you, you can what what aerosol droplets you produce may be more heavy with the virus itself. Mm -hmm. And so there, you know, then there's also the dynamic of the social environments you're in. And you know, it may be the case that if even if you're a super spreader, if you're at close range with 50 people outside, the chances that you infect someone are quite small. But if you're in a nightclub, um, the chances that you infect them are are quite high. So there's there's a sort of environmental aspect, there's a, a disease aspect, how sick you are, and there's also um, I think some amount of sort of individual variation, all of which contribute to determine who is going to be a super spreader and who isn't. And you know we're 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 not really investigating this now. It's probably not going to be very helpful in combating this pandemic. But as I say, it may be it may be sort of um, a tool that's used down the line. Did the um... Asian countries that succeeded, did they, did they shut down restaurants? Did they shut down movie theaters? Did they, did they do any of that? Was, was, did they actually actively prevent large gatherings? Just about everybody did some amount of shutdown. It's a question of what scale and mm -hmm. what, um, what kind. But yeah, I mean, Japan is the outlier and not ever having entered into like a real shelter in place. Um, Could it be that the people a, out there had actually had more exposure over the years, decades, maybe centuries to, to, to COVID-like uh, viruses that had, that, had, that had somehow, through natural selection, uh, uh, built up certain kind of immunity in them that other parts of the, the world did not have. I mean, we know for a fact that, that populations, as they go around the world, uh, have different susceptibilities to various viruses because they're ancient history has not subjected them to testing in that sense. That's why uh, smallpox was so even more devastating among Native Americans than it was among the, the Europeans that were here because they just had less. Is, is, it, is it a function of MERS or SARS or, or, or other co coronaviruses that ha have there been more of them in the, in the East, in, in Asia? There is a sort of working hypothesis that that is one of the factors driving the divergence, uh, the divergent experience of East Asian countries from the rest of the world. And it's based on the fact that um, there, you know, there's simply many, many, a lot of these coronaviruses come out of bat populations and, and there are many more bat, pop, there's many, there are many more bats in East Asia than there are in other oh, parts of the world. I see. Um, which means that, yeah, there, there there's a... Um, there's a, like I said, it's a working hypothesis. I wouldn't say that it's oh. been demonstrated in a, um, in a kind of clear-cut way. And what but about it is the, certainly conceivable. the minority experience? Because um, one of the weird things that I discovered during that piece on plagues that we worked on together is that we don't know for sure, but definitely contemporaneous accounts of the, the 1918-1919 flu epidemic suggested that actually whites were more affected and more of them died proportionally than African-Americans, even though 
the disparity between the conditions and treatment of those two populations was even greater than it is today. Um, uh, I look at I look at how how the infection rates are going here, and you see the reverse happening to a great extent. I looked in the UK, and you see uh, an interesting discrepancy between uh, Caribbean immigrants and Indian immigrants. Uh, in other words, if it's just of color, it doesn't capture quite a divergent experience between those two. Now, obviously, we're talking about culture. We're talking about class. We're talking about people whose jobs are going to by nature, put them into more contact. Uh, uh, what's your best explanation of that? Is is it is it is it just as as multifactorial? But they could could there be some some biological or genetic or complication to this? Of course, I yeah. think that and you know anytime you're you're trying to solve the riddle of this any of the riddles of this pandemic with a single solution, it's it's almost certainly too simplistic. But also that means that. Probably there are a huge number of factors that are playing some role. And the thing that I've been um, working on recently and thinking about recently um, in this area is the effect of vitamin D mm. um, on, the, on the course of the pandemic. Now, from the very beginning of the disease, there were some articles published by quite prominent um, public health officials saying, you know, vitamin D may be somewhat helpful in protecting against COVID. And then there were a series of they weren't randomized control trials. They were sort of um, associational research studies in hospitals showing that populations that had um, higher levels of vitamin D were, were much less at risk of severe disease and death than those who had. Um, That's you know, why I've been taking had... vitamin D every day yeah. <laughs> since last and, February. Know... <laughs> but, so, so that's but possible, there is, right? There is, a, there, is a, there is a racial aspect to that yeah. because it is, um, you know, it is. Uh, black and brown populations who tend to have lower vitamin D levels than than um, than Caucasian populations, um, and actually, you know, it's it's sort of purely because of skin, may, right? Purely because of the absorption yeah. of the sun, uh, yeah. and people who whose ancestors grew up with more exposure to the sun, therefore, uh, didn't need as much vitamin D as people who were in less uh, uh, in, in less clear blue sky environments. And exactly what role that plays, you know, there are a few large trials being done now, which we're going to know more in a few months, I mm. think. It's, it's unclear. But when you're one of the big picture orienting things I always try to keep in mind when thinking about this pandemic generally is that when you're dealing with a disease going through a virgin population of 7 billion people, right. differences that of, of even really small fractions yeah. make a huge, have hugely disparate outcomes at the population level. So if you're talking about something that increases, you know, risk of death by 5%, that doesn't sound like very much at the, when you're considering at the level of the individual, and you're talking about, you know, some a risk of death from, you know, 0.1 out of a thousand going up to 0.12 out of a thousand or something. But when you play that out over yeah. many million billions of people, you see hugely divergent experiences. Mm. And indeed, with the vitamin D thing, um, there's a big study that came out a few weeks ago showing that the um, it's really the charts are incredible. Looking at the, the um, fall waves in Europe, um, showing that, you know, there's been this hypothesis going all along that seasonality would play a, a really important role in the disease, um, that there would be a big fall surge and um, that was hypothesized that it would be about temper primarily about temperature and humidity, in addition to the sort of different social um, responses that we take going inside, et cetera, going back to school, et cetera. Um, but this study showed that 
all of the fall waves in Europe could be what could not be explained at all through temperature effects or humidity effects. Mm. But there was a quite strong association with the latitude, um, which was really like at what point that city or that community um, started losing, you know, lost enough sunlight that its population was no longer producing um, sufficient vitamin D to help protect against the disease. Wow. Um, and if you look at, you know, we're now in the US, we're talking about, um, we're talking about, you know, we're bending the curve. The few, first few weeks of January have seen a real um, collapse of case numbers. And part of that is probably people freaking out about the high numbers that were in December. But I think part of it may be that starting on December 22nd, the days started getting longer. Um, and that really is the day at which, <laughs> at which the curve turned. Um, hmm. You know, there are a huge number of factors here, obviously, like people can infect each other in the middle of summer with tons of sunlight. I don't mean to say that. No, but it's all about all... the margin. It's all about the, especially in epidemiology, which is sort of hard to get into your head, tiny, tiny changes on an individual level. If, and I've been, if generalized, sorry. can have disproportionate impact on on the general population in ways that I mean, this is something that 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 you kind of learn. I kind of learned through the HIV stuff, which is that uh, you know you could get rid of HIV altogether if you just got a critical mass of people either taking PrEP, the pill that prevents you getting it, or suppressing the virus so much that you can't infect it. And you can see that happening. And yet we still haven't been able to get our, our, our hands around abolishing it in the U.S. or even presenting that as a, as a, as a goal, as it were. Um, and I think about these dynamics with COVID a lot having to do with you know, long COVID, where people are showing yeah. symptoms um, for many months sometimes quite severe symptoms. And a lot of virologists will say, and have said to me when I've interviewed them about it, oh, these are exactly what we'd expect. We'd expect to see some subgroup of people infected who are carrying difficulties with them six months or a year on, and maybe some of some smaller percentage of them are dealing with lifelong um, issues. That's what happens when you have a major viral infection. Some people are really, you know, suffer the blows of that for the rest of their lives. And that is, true, I think, so far as it goes. But even if the number of people who are experiencing that are, is really low, 1%, 2%, if you're talking about a world in which we've got hundreds of millions of COVID cases, then we're talking about many millions of people who are going to be, um, who are going to be suffering from this pandemic a decade from now or two decades from now. And that's really quite scary. And there are some studies showing that the numbers are much higher than that, although mm. it's, I think that those are um, probably a little Sort you, of exaggerating threat. you alluded to this um, a bit earlier, um, but if I sort of imagine that we're transported three years in, into three years in the future, do you think that the trajectory of the of the pandemic in these various countries will differ that much in the West? I mean, they do seem to be converging at, at some level. It, it's kind of humbling. It seems to me to see that this thing has a sort of almost natural force that human societies have attempted to arrest, to prevent, stop, whatever. But in the end, it has its way. It just has its way. It, 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 it just either gets through the entire population and that dies out um, or it continues to kill people. Um, and we can, you know, we can accelerate that process with vaccines, I suppose, um, but at the same time, it, it, it just feels like this is a kind of natural process that, 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 that we're experiencing that, that I certainly put it this way. I'm, I'm not going to scream at any politician 
who's fucked this up. Because, I mean, there are reasons that you should be mad at people for making bad decisions at certain points. But at some point also, I think most people also understand this is bigger than most these politicians could possibly do uh, affect. It's, it's, this is a, when you look at previous plagues in history, have any been halted in the past by human interaction, intervention? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the first pandemic of its kind that produced a vaccine in the course of the pandemic. When we talk about the polio vaccine or the smallpox vaccine, those happened long after those diseases had become endemic mm. in the population. This is, a, we're having a very different experience here. But what I would say is everything you've just said is just seems distressingly true for the West. Mm. And it but is really striking Asia. to me, not for Asia and not for Australia and New Zealand who occupy a sort of an in-between category. But they were, um, they, as, they were able to crack down. They, I mean, New Zealand especially got nipped it in the bud, basically. Uh, if, if that's, and, and being an island and being able to seal themselves off in the way that they did. But nonetheless, they have great credit for jumping on it and realizing that's... But then when I think of somewhere like the UK or the US, if, if Trump had, had, had suddenly responded by saying, okay... All in flight, all inbound flights are over. Only American citizens can come back, and they all have to go into quarantine. He would have been excoriated for, for especially because of, it would be regarded as xenophobia, racism. Uh, you and a free society can't simply just shut itself down that way. Certainly not in the I, well. I guess New Zealand did, but I I can't imagine the United States or the United Kingdom ever being able to do that. Well, it shows a real, I think, a real, in retrospect, a real short, a failure of short-term, long-term thinking in the yeah. sense that, um, you know, like the experience of South Korea right now or Taiwan or Japan, those people are much freer <laughs> than anyone in the U.S. or the U.K. is um, right now because yeah. they endured a brief, um, painful But early, response. early response. Early. That's the key. But, you know, when, I, when I've been talking to a lot of people about these issues, these comparative issues um, over the last couple of weeks, and a lot of them say, you know, the experience of East Asian countries with SARS and MERS gave them a bit of a dry run. They gave them the tools they needed. They showed the failings in their healthcare systems that they needed to address. And so when this pandemic arose, they had a kind of a game plan at hand. And I think that that's a fair critique. I think that in the, in the US and the UK and the EU, we, we looked down on, on, the Chinese, on the Chinese flu in January and didn't respond as we needed to. But what I find really striking is that, you know, we basically had the SARS-MERS experience in February, March. We saw this pandemic up close and were terrified by it. We even took a quite dramatic response, which was to say, retreating into full quarantine for a period of a couple of months. And we actually didn't learn from that experience in the way that the Asian countries did in their, from their, you know, their, their previous pandemics. Oh. We didn't, we, in the sense that we didn't come into the fall prepared for a second wave. We could have seen our experience in the spring and in the U.S. with the summer wave and thought, okay, we now know exactly what to do. We can put into place a six or eight week circuit breaker response that allows us to stand up the public health infrastructure we need and institute the, you know, the testing surveillance and the quarantine apparatus that is necessary to halt this virus totally in its tracks. 
we had a kind of first experience in the spring. We had to some degree a second experience in the summer. And then we started facing it again in the fall at an even higher level with more cases and more deaths. And it was like we were just as ignorant about what we needed to do as we had been in February or March. And that to me is ultimately an indictment of our culture, our political culture, our social culture, our public health culture, um, as much as it is a statement about the disease's power, you know, as much as it is a... So what is it about that culture? How would you explain, how would you describe that culture that just sort of wanted to go back to normal and, and didn't absorb the lessons of the spring? What, what is it about that culture that makes it unable to, made it unable to adapt in the fall? Or to learn well, from the spring, it's something that I'm I'm struggling to figure to put my finger on mm-hmm. precisely, and I think that there are a lot of different aspects to it. But when I think about, for instance, I mean, you know, um, rapid testing is something that we had the technology to deploy. Um, in fact, we had produced many millions of rapid tests um, as early as the late summer. These are tests that you know cost like a dollar to produce and give you a result within five minutes, and you can administer it yourself in your home. They're not quite as accurate in terms of measuring whether you're sick or not as the PCR test, which you have to send out to a lab, but they're much cheaper and they're much faster. And especially if you sort of double them up and take two at once, if you get two positives, like you basically know that you're infectious. This was a technology that we could have deployed very comfortably in the summer. If we had known how to conceptualize the difference between a rapid test like a home pregnancy test and a lab test like the test that you get when you think you're pregnant and you go to the doctor and had had a public health apparatus that could both inform the public and roll that out sending them to everybody you know uh, to in, in your mailbox so you got a, te- a couple tests every week and you could take them every week in south korea they manufactured basically a mask per citizen per day in the spring and sent them to the citizens of the country to use when they went out their door. We could have done that in the US. Um, we could have manufactured that, that, those masks and sent them to every citizen. Um, we didn't, we just, we chose not to. And there is a large failing at the sort of highest level of federal leadership, but there's also failing at the local level where we tried to stand up you know, these contact tracing armies in a lot of places in New York and in Massachusetts. And most people wouldn't even pick up the calls because they thought it was just spam. But there's also, Um, there's also, it strikes me within the, within the medical and pharmaceutical and CDC, et cetera, environment, a kind of, and you saw this with, with Fauci early on. I mean, he's done a great, I'm not, but, but, but there was a sense of, we can't tell them the truth, really. We can't tell them that, for example, uh, we need to have those, those, these surgical masks uh, for doctors, so we don't have them yet for most people, so we don't want to have a run on them. But, so therefore, we'll tell them that wearing masks is, you know, iffy. It, it, it's neither, it isn't that crucial. And there's this, and also, you know, the failure, the, the desire to not give people the tools in their own hands to take care of them. If I, if I, had, a, if I had a bunch of home tests that I could use all the time, I would use them. I really would. I mean, I, I, I would feel empowered by that. Uh, and uh, but there is this fear of people just doing what they want from the medical establishment sometimes, which I feel is counterproductive a lot of times. I mean, uh, oh, absolutely. 
Uh, and it, it makes but it, it ultimately makes the the good the enemy the perfect the enemy of the good mm-hmm. um you know, if we had an at-home rapid test that was as precisely perfect as the pcr test that we developed yes that would be preferable yeah. but um the similar you know, with cloth a, masks i mean yeah totally. not ideal and yeah you can criticize them they're not n95s or but Again, it struck me as quite obvious that if this small little reduction in transmission, let's say, was replicated across 330 million people, it would have a huge impact. And the inability to just sort of say yes and, and to involve people in that. I mean, this is a national crisis. And, you know, I, 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 you, you, I think in those circumstances, you need to empower everyone to help it, uh, to do it. It means, you know, back in the day, they were throwing condoms out of bars. They were, they, were, they were not engaging in anything but the goal to stop this viral replication. And maybe it's Trump. Uh, but as you, as you say, I think there, was, there were mixed messages from all sorts of... I, I think that Trump is, is a bit of a, um, a distraction. Yeah. You know, I... Yeah. I uh, you know, you could not, I mean, I would have given anything to have a different president in the White House um, during the pandemic. And I, I, I think there's, practically speaking, nothing that he did right, although he did help accelerate the development of the vaccines. Um, but aside from that, it was just a total disaster. On the other hand, we, 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 um, we produced as a result this sort of like partisan uh, approach to the pandemic in which we thought that all we needed to do was, quote unquote, trust the science and be vigilant, and that if we did that, that we would succeed. And the thing that was stopping the country from succeeding was anti-science hysteria on the right and a lack of vigilance among the population at large. And I just, when I look at the comparative experience of all the countries of Europe, I just think it's very hard to make the case that say, you know, the insanity of the American right wing is the main driver of the American experience of the pandemic. We're really in the middle of the pack when it comes to all of the countries that we tend to think of as our peer countries. And that, in a sort of distressing way, I think um, suggests that leadership of any kind is almost beside the point and that um, you know the way that the culture is built more from the ground up is more determinative. And to pull back even from that, um, you, know, you, asked, you asked a few minutes ago, um, what is the cultural thing that's making it making it so hard for us to respond appropriately. You know, I think it's really important and useful and illuminating to keep in mind that this disease is an ironic plague. It has assaulted and undermined the richest countries of the world, the most self-assured and arrogant cultures in the world who felt that they had innovated and through prosperity brought themselves out of the universe of nature and could live literally protected from those threats. It's not just the case that those delusions were shown to be delusions by COVID-19. It is those countries who have been decimated most. (laughs) You know, the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia are thriving in the pandemic compared to what happened across Western Europe. Now, a lot of that has to do with the age structure of those populations, but it is nevertheless, I think, one of the key narrative features of this plague, that it wasn't the least developed, least prosperous, least advanced medically countries that struggled the most with it, as 
was warned for many years by anybody looking at the public health problems and challenges of the globe. It was the countries that everybody in the public health community assumed would be safest in such an environment. And that tells us that there may be something about wealth and the expectations that it produces in us, including um, you know, aversion to less, less than perfect but still effective um, remedies and the sort of litigiousness that it builds into our culture where it makes every regulator terrified of lawsuits. That has actually been a driver of the death that we've seen across Europe. And that is, I think, something that's a very deep cultural fact about our experience over the last year that we're going to spend probably a generation reckoning with going forward. And of course, that it it reminds me in so many ways about climate change as well, even though obviously climate change is going to affect the poor and the South in a way that this, that the arrogance that, yeah, it's not going to really affect us or, or, or will be okay. It's just those poor Bangladeshis that didn't get washed away is, of course, there's, in nature, nature doesn't make distinctions between nation states. It just doesn't. Um, <clears throat> if you were, let's say I gave you total power to be, uh, COVID czar right now. Um, tell me, is there anything we can do to help the production of these vaccine vaccines? Is there anything we could do to like maybe ask other drug companies to jump on them to, to, to maybe, uh, I don't know. I'm just, if I would, I would try to jumpstart this somehow. And I, I, I don't know enough and I haven't read enough to really understand how one could possibly jumpstart it now. Presumably, I mean, I don't, I don't doubt that Ron Klain, wants this to happen. So it's just the question of whether they have the machinery to do it. But is there anything obvious? And, and the second question I have for you is, obviously, we have a limited number of vaccines. They're coming, more and more are coming. So we do have a question of priority. Who do we prioritize in this vaccine uh, situation? And it, it seems to me the logical uh, groups are those who are most vulnerable to the disease. I mean, the, the, those who stand the greatest chance of dying from it, first of all, which means age, comorbidities, uh, perhaps it, people who are more likely to be exposed to it in terms of their workforce and so on and so forth. So I know those are two huge questions, but but have a bash. If, you, if there's yeah. one thing you could do now, <laughs> if one thing you could do now to help, what would it be? What's the most important well, the thing first, you do? On the first question, there is just, it is a logistically complicated thing to produce vaccines because um, you're building a, a factories from scratch, which have to produce very sensitive chemical reagents, uh, you know, work with them in, in very precise ways. And there is unfortunately a fair amount of just quality control that needs to be um, built into that process and that delays things and means that things take longer than, than you might hope. I saw an estimate yesterday that 70% of the cost of producing a new vaccine goes into a, what is effectively quality control measures. Now, the main way to respond to that is just to toss way more money at it and say, you know, we're going to guarantee a purchase of this scale. Not only that, as the government, we are going to be procuring land, actually building the factories, helping through, you know, um, National Guard or or Defense Department of Defense resources to really like stand this up. And it is actually effectively what's what has been done um, to some degree um, in China uh, with their like you know, really, really rapid building out of, of healthcare facilities earlier in the pandemic. There's just a sort of like, the government is going to take a wartime approach and just like make it happen. Um, there is more that could be done there. Although I, I, I would just say in general, the fact that we are, you know, we have 
we're going to have 100 million vaccines um, distributed in the U.S. Uh, by you know the early winter, a year after it was designed, is in itself an incredible engineering feat. But of course, we could accelerate that and grow it if we if we just threw a ton more money and resources at it. I don't think it's that complicated. The question is just about um, money and resources. On the prioritization side of things, you know, you could develop a very sophisticated algorithm to produce the absolute out optimal outcome in terms of community protection. Um, but there's a huge cost every time you add complexity to that algorithm because it delays, you know, people are confused about whether they qualify. Um, there's, you know, fighting over of the, you know, the, the divisions between particular categories and the prioritization. Um, from my perspective, what you want to do is you want to sort of decide first, what is the target that you're going for? Are you trying to prevent deaths? Or are you trying to get us more quickly back to uh, a stabilized, normal flow of society? The argument for protecting healthcare workers and other quote unquote essential workers is really much more about the second imperative. It's about getting the society back on its feet than it is about protecting deaths. Um, the age skew is so much more profound a driver of vulnerability than any other metric, you know, ethnicity, uh, occupation, um, you know, where, how you live, what, you know, whether you live in a multifamily home or on your own, that if you're really trying to prioritize um, saving lives, uh, the only logic I think is to, is to work by age group. Yeah. Um, what about sex? That's not to say, that's not to say that the second goal is silly. I think no, that no, it's no. reasonable to no, say I that we should, um, we should be trying to get our society back on its feet, but we've muddled through with this kind of complicated habit both ways and quite complicated, you know, quite complex mm. set of, um, set of systems so that like, we're unfortunately, we're both in a situation where we are undersupplied with vaccines, and we are also also discarding them because the people who qualify aren't don't know that they qualify, aren't willing to take them, aren't showing up to the appointments, don't know how to go to the appointments, um, and it varies from state to state, and that's confusing too. Um, what counts as a comorbidity? To, you know, in, in New Jersey, I know like they, if you're a smoker, you're qualified for the vaccine, which is like no, no. You can just go up and say you're a smoker. There's not that's not like really, a, um, and there's just so much um, unnecessary complexity built in. If we had great faith in our public health institutions to manage an unbelievably complicated algorithm of priority, I might be interested in saying we should go beyond just age groups and say factor in. You know, if you're a, a transplant patient, then that adds. You know. The equivalent of 12 years to your age, or if you're an HIV patient, it adds the equivalent of four years to your, whatever it is. Um, but I think that given what we've seen so far, um, the crudest prioritization is the most effective and that we should probably- uh, And we shouldn't let you know, the perfect be the enemy of the good. And, 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 same, same lesson as everything, yeah. And get it out there. Just get, I mean, I don't know why we don't have big sites where we just, anybody can line up. I mean, just, you could have these priority goals, then you could also just have random gymnasiums or, 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 uh, you know, open air camps with just for extra vaccine for anybody who just wants to get out there and get one, stand in line, six feet apart, mask, et cetera, but, but come and get it. 
and you know there there is a um there you know you could also try to prioritize the fighting cases and actually vaccinate the young or <laughs> mostly spreading it that's another way of approaching it mm. um but i think to the extent that we are already living in this world of like this 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 algorithm is too complicated um the real indictment is that in figuring out exactly who's prioritized and at what level we haven't even bothered to account for previous infections so we're talking about something like 30% of the american public has had covid and really? we may be high? wasting yeah really about 100 million yeah um really yeah. So we already have you a know, third of the country with herd immunity, as it were. I mean, a third of the country is already immune. Yeah. I mean, there's some question about exactly how long that. Um, yeah. About that immunity that, lasts, but it's pretty. Yeah. It's better than none. Yeah. Um, yeah. The um, Yu Yang Gu, who's like the, sort of the best modeler uh, of the of the disease, he's an MIT um, math guy. Um, I guess it's a little lower than I than I was saying. He estimates that 85 million Americans have have had it, mm. um, but there, there's a range that goes up to 125 million and down to 55 million. But in any event, you know, there's a huge chunk of the country that's been exposed, and we could be wasting an enormous amount of vaccines on those people. Um, yeah. yeah, and we could be much, much, much farther along in sort of attaining. How would you find that? Would you give them a quick test before they got the vaccine? Well, I mean, one, you know, you could, you could, uh, you could have built a system originally that kept track of positive right, 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 tests right, 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 um, right. all through. Um, you know, there, there is an antibody test, but that's not, that's not perfect, but you could give that to them and screen out some amount of people um, who, who were shown to have antibodies. Um, and, you know, they're, they're more invasive, uh, extensive tests having to do with T-cell immunity, which are probably not... Um, you probably can't deploy them at the scale that is necessary. But in any event, there's like, you know, something approaching 100 million Americans are, as best as we understand it, already protected against this disease. And how and many have we vaccinated? Be, Six million or so? Is that where we are? I can't, uh, um, no, it's higher than that. Okay. Um, we're at about, uh, 17 million. Okay. Um, but if those oh, sorry, 17... No. According to uh, the, the latest update, says uh, 19. Okay, well, if it's let's say it's 20 million out of, yeah. let's say we we've vaccinated 20 million of the 100 million who are already immune, we've gone absolutely nowhere. Um, we've we've just yeah, uh, yeah. god damn it. And there, there's also some you know some thinking that for people who um, who have been exposed to the disease, they could get a beneficial boost to their immunity with a second shot, but they don't need two shots, or you know with one shot, but they don't need two shots. Um, which could also allow the vaccines to be distributed more thoroughly. Um, in all of these, you know, all of these cases, it's really, um, you know, if we had a more, a more effective and thoroughly built out um, public health infrastructure, we could be managing this information and managing the prioritization um, much more effectively. But we've, we've just, we've just really failed <laughs> to build out anything like that in this time. And I think it's an indictment of how corroded many of these institutions have been, have become over the last few decades, that very few of them could really do the job um, even as they were tasked with it. I mean, we, we were talking about the FDA and the CDC earlier. Coming into the pandemic, it was commonly said, not just among you know, Americans, but all around the world, that these were the world, they were the gold standard of public health institutions anywhere in the world. And they have just 
fallen totally mm. on their faces. Mm. And some of that was Trump and political interference, to be sure. But it certainly wasn't all that. Like when the mm. FDA decided that it was not going to accept the test that the WHO had already approved in January and was going to design its own test and set the U.S. back a month or six weeks of a really critical time. That wasn't because Trump was ordering that to happen. It was just um, the sort of imperiousness of American public health bureaucrats. Yeah, it was to, it was hubris to begin with. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to take the WHO. Thing. We're going to we're going to uh, do our own thing and then fuck it up, which is what yeah, happened. Exactly. David, it's been fantastic. You've been incredibly uh, informative and helpful, and uh, I'm I'm incredibly grateful for you helping um, us understand this better. Um, I really. I want to thank you. I want to recommend anything you write about the subject uh, in New York Magazine, which has been publishing some of David's best stuff. And and as you can tell from our conversation, David is completely empirical about this and open-minded, trying to figure it out. There's no edge or angle to what he's doing. Um, the one thing we haven't covered because I, I, I is the the lockdown debate, whether we should ever have had a lockdown in the first place, whether with 100 million people, as you say, who are already immune to this, whether uh, the lockdowns have made a big difference or not. Um, where just, I don't, that's such a, a difficult position, but it's, the debate is sort of raging in, in some parts of the world. Uh, do you think if we hadn't locked down, we would have had a much worse outcome in this? It depends what you mean by we. I think that, for instance, in New York City mm -hmm. in March, it was really critical that we yes. uh, that we locked down. Um, and there are a number of other places like that where there were outbreaks that were quite dramatic. But I think even in the American context, it was almost certainly counterproductive for countries like, you know, across the Midwest um, or you know, in, into the Southwest, places that had had very little, you know. Um, experience with the disease to lock down because we essentially exhausted the willingness of those people to do that again when the disease really arrived and it was necessary. And that was quite counterproductive. I think in general, lockdowns can be quite effective if they are coupled with a public effort to stand up the kind of health infrastructure that is necessary to then allow us to leave lockdown. That is to say, large-scale testing, support for quarantining, um, you know, really elaborate contact tracing. They're not, these are not things that, you know, they're not mysteries. We know exactly what works. We just need a lot of public effort put into it for them to be workable. Instead, and we've if, had this sort of stop-start, awful, agonizing, endless slowdown of everything, um, which of course has... The pain. We've endured the pain without, without actually making anything out of it. That's the thing that's so horrifying. You know, when I was working on the vaccines piece, um, I talked to this vaccine researcher named Florian Kramer, who um, is at Mount Sinai in New York. And he was saying he thought that if there had been a WHO sort of mandated global shutdown of international travel of just two or three weeks in January or February, we could have avoided almost all of the pandemic suffering that we've seen to date. So there is a way in which taking faster and more intrusive action now is more effective because it allows us to leave behind those measures more quickly. And in the West, we've really preferred 
to ratchet up our responses mm -hmm. rather than go whole hog and then ratchet like, down then sort of back our way out of them yeah and i think that has been a really catastrophic uh mistake yeah i can see that too um but you know if we were to say in the u.s okay we're gonna lock down for a month and like you wait at your front door and if someone's gonna come with a vaccine in the next month and then you're gonna stay at home for another two weeks for it to take hold I would be completely in favor of that yeah. lockdown. I think everybody um, would. We'd have a very clear limit. You'd have something to look forward to. You'd understand why it was happening. And you could trust the authorities to do what they were going to do. And, and, and of course, the, the cost of lockdown in terms of people's physical health, mental health, is we have yet to really understand how awful that has been. Um, but it, it's, it's, there is a trade-off. There is obviously a trade-off. Um, and if you lock people down without any strategy to really make that work, except to try and prevent economic growth going through the toilet, um, you, 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 you make that impossible to happen. Um, yeah. And even the, even the economic trade-offs are like, if we had really spent a fraction of what we ended up spending on COVID stimulus and, and support, to build out a mass testing program last winter, we would have saved ourselves a ton of money in addition to, uh, you know, boosting the economy dramatically and saving all, you know, saving ourselves all of the um, mental and psychological suffering that you're talking about. I mean, in addition to a lot of dying. There will be, you know, not just long COVID, but long uh, lockdown syndrome, <laughs> which in the sense that people's mental health has obviously deteriorated. Um, it and the educational setbacks for um, educational kids. Yeah. Extraordinary blow to kids, a whole the whole generation of kids and and then we have the effect on addiction levels which 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 is also i mean it set back the opioid uh situation pretty badly too which was which is also taking untold numbers of lives one it's the first time in a couple of decades that people more people are smoking too really <laughs> yeah i i will forgive i mean i my own strategy is i've got to give myself i've been definitely smoking more weed uh <laughs> in lockdown it's just i can't it's it's it just takes the edge off this ordeal um that and that and netflix and hbo max and and all that stuff um it's a paradox isn't it that we've been given this sort of endless holiday in a way i mean many of us are working still i mean we're doing what we're doing right now and um but there's a lot of people with little to do and i found it weird that the 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 more time you have, the the less you do. <laughs> so there's a par. It sort of paralyzes you. It kind of, uh, it's numbing after a while. And I, I and I and then you have the syndrome where I'm constantly telling myself, why didn't you use the opportunity to write that book? Why did you not use the opportunity to do that and that? And and of course, most yeah. of us have failed uh, dramatically in that. Um, one last. Well, thought. I think it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a um, uh, compressed. Uh, model of you know the modern experience in general, in which we've we've grown so atomized um, and have taught ourselves that to be effective and happy and productive people means just like really working while we're alone. And I think we've forgotten a lot of the um, empowering, um, social comforting features of casual interactions mm. with the broader world. Mm. Um, and you know it's. What worries me maybe most of all is that we're going to be pulled forward by this pandemic into something like a kind of Wally -E future where, you know, a few months ago, I would have told you, uh, you know, as we were saying that earlier, that this was like a plague year. 
to be followed perhaps by a roaring 20s. But I worry the longer that it drags on that we're just becoming more and more, you know, sort of we're just growing more accustomed to living in our bubbles, watching our Netflixes and our HBO Maxes and thinking that our social lives are on our phones exclusively. Yeah. Um, and I think that that would be, you know, that would be uh, really quite damaging going forward. It would intensify all the worst trends that we're already experiencing in terms of our ability to talk to one another, to operate civilly and rationally within a political world. I was thinking about 1918 the other day. Um, so about 700,000 Americans died. Um, and a large number of those people died because of subsequent uh, bacterial infections. I mean, that could not be treated back then. I mean, that's that's what I read anyway. That, 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 that yes, the virus took people out, but then they got these pneumonia and other kinds of opportunistic infections that they had nothing to do, with, which implies maybe that this is as bad as 1918. I mean, we we are we're headed now to what's half a million. We obviously have three times the population. So, uh, but if you hadn't had bacteria here, if you had if you hadn't had antibiotics in this epidemic, the death toll would have been just infinitely higher, wouldn't it? Yeah, although, you know, it's interesting, I, I had a, um, a conversation with a virologist a few months ago, where he said a lot of the death toll at the very beginning of the, um, of the disease came from doctors trying to do too much and be too experimental. And they were too focused on, you know, pushing, you know, drugs that were unproven on their patients as in a kind of a last dish um, effort. That was, um, we talking about really now or 1918? This, this one, yeah. COVID-19. So, for example, all said, the overuse of ventilators, for example, which turned out yeah. to be not that good an And he idea. said, you know, if you had taken World War I field doctors and put them in these COVID wards in the spring, they would have done much better because they understood just in a crude way what it meant to keep people alive. Right. And that the most important thing to do was just keep people alive. Now, he said, we've sort of learned a lot of those lessons, right. and now the treatment in hospitals is much better. We're doing, you know, we're not pushing. Get people to sleep on their, on their stomachs, for example, a simple thing. Exactly, yeah, which, totally. which any asthmatic would tell you immediately. They know how, they know how that works. Um, but it's another way in which, you know, the whole, all of the assumptions that we carried into this pandemic the, about our sort of imperious superiority as modern Westerners, um, you know, a lot of those assumptions are, are really um, sort of crashed on the rocks of reality. If we really would have been better off served by World War I field doctors than by, um, you know, people using experimental, um, you know, genetically designed drugs in the year 2020, that's quite humbling. It is humbling. The whole thing has been humbling, I think, especially for us in the West. Um, and of course, I think we're probably rush to forget about it entirely as soon as as soon as it's over but I mean, there are lessons let's here hope we can forget about it you know yeah but i don't want us to, to you know not internalize what this means that humans are still vulnerable in this way that that probably more viruses are out there that climate change actually does accelerate the process in which these new uh, organisms can emerge uh, the big shifts in climate have affected these things in the past they did in the sixth century, uh, most critically, and then the 13th. Um, David, wonderful to have you. Lovely to see you. Thanks for chatting. Thanks you for too. giving us so much solid information and ideas. Um, I, I'm, I'm incredibly indebted to you. And stay healthy. Oh, thank you so much.
Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. You, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.